Okay, we're back. I had a nasty scooter accident, yeah, scooter accident, back in November 2021, and as a result, had to take a four-month hiatus to recover. Well, the bones are healed, so here we go. A bit over a week into my arrival, my father was forcibly disappeared by the Assad regime on July 2nd, 2013. And I received this news via a Facebook message from my sister, as brief as, he's taken, we're leaving. And, you know, that was the moment that changed my life. It was it was huge. It continues to be a huge moment. My father is still missing, as we speak today, for almost eight years now. When I say missing, and I also want to put it into context into here in this environment in the U.S., he's not like legally detained. It's not like he's in a prison and we can talk to him and we know he's alive. It's not like anything. It's someone kidnapped by our own regime. And that's it. The regime won't admit that he has him. And, you know, this could be it. We recorded this interview just before the accident, but given the recent geopolitical events, and let's call it what it is, the unjust invasion of Ukraine, the plight of millions of refugees or forcibly displaced peoples have been brought back into the global spotlight. This week's guest is Sana Mustafa. Although Sana's moving story is bound up in the Syrian conflict, her journey, her courage, fortitude and the work she's doing in her role as Director of Partnership and Engagement at Asylum Access force us to confront what is an anachronistic approach to dealing with displaced peoples. Sana is focused on empowering them with agency and to help them regain their dignity. And in this moving interview, she recounts her upbringing under the Assad dictatorship and the jubilation of the Arab Spring, the trauma of being thrust into a civil war and being forcibly displaced at age 22. However, Sana's story is one of resilience, inner belief and the power of community and the kindness of strangers. As an activist, she has spoken at the United Nations in New York, delivered a TED Talk, spoken at the National Press Club in Washington, the White House, Harvard Law School, Stanford and numerous other venues. She's also the founding member of the Global Refugee-Led Network, a coalition working to increase refugees' engagement with the international community to pursue inclusive, sustainable and effective refugee immigration policy, something many nations must now confront as they integrate millions of displaced Ukrainian citizens. Now, on with the show. Sana, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute delight uh, to meet you and uh, to hear your story. And first of all, I should give a, a shout out to the wonderful Natasha Friedis for recommending that we speak to you and uh, and hear your extraordinary story. So before we get into talking about your, your life journey, and I, I don't know quite how you would describe yourself. I said, uh, you look at your life as an, you're an activist, you're a political refugee, but you're probably so much more than that. Yeah, I think I would... That there are a number of identities that I find them that I find them existential to who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. So I do see myself and identify myself as a woman, as a woman of color, um, a feminist, and an activist, hundred percent. And I think in terms of displacement, I like to identify myself as forcibly dis- uh, dis- displaced person of refugee. This is this closer. I think it gives more justice to the that it wasn't a choice. Yeah. Um, and it overcomes all the legal definitions. That's just more, I find it more human. So I identify as, yeah, as a, an activist, feminist, a woman of color, queer, and forcibly displaced person. Okay. Well, before we talk, get into talk about the specifics of what you're doing as a forcibly displaced person who is uh, taking real action in service of others, we always like to talk about childhood. Now, 
uh, I mean, obviously your childhood and your story, if anyone that's even uh, remotely sort of read about your background is, is radically different to a lot of people we've interviewed. I think what you share with all our guests is your early years were probably in quite a sort of a stable upbringing under the sort of the loving guidance of, of parents that cared for you in, in a probably a really solid community. So from what I've read and what I've heard from you before when we first talked was that you were born in a small town in Syria called Masyaf, if I pronounce it correctly, um, which looking at it on the map is north of Homs and south of Aleppo and also what seems to have been a very diverse population, combining uh, Muslims, Alawites and Christians. A lot of people might not know the, sort of the, the makeup of uh, the region, sort of the, that part of the no- northern part of the Middle East, but the communities have lived side by side for generations of Alawites, Christians and Muslims. So, I mean, interesting to have grown up in a, in a diverse community like that. But also the one thing that I discovered when reading about Masayef is it's the location of a, a medieval castle that was featured in quite a famous film called Assassin's Creed. So maybe you could just reflect on growing up in that small town and what it was like in those early years before the strife um, and the struggles kicked in. Yeah, definitely. Masyaf is, I mean, for me, it's a huge part of my childhood. Actually, my first year, six years of childhood, I was raised, I was born in Masyaf, but I was raised in um, Al-Yarimouk camp, which is the Palestinian camp of refugees in Damascus. Because my father had spent his teenage and um, like early years in, in Al-Yarimouk camp in Damascus. And so that, which also speaks to my dad's activism and, you know, what the communities he was grounded in. And so mm-hmm. when he, my, my mom and uh, my dad got married, the first few years we lived in there. So I do have very vivid memories. I was very young when we were there of riding on the bicycle behind my dad, or, you know, he puts me in the front and he would go to work. And at the time he worked at a like, keys store. Mm-hmm. So it was a very modest job. And then I was, we moved to, to Masyaf, to my town. And growing up in Masyaf was, really, really nice in many ways because of the community. I was very grounded. <clears throat> we lived with my extended family. So, I mean, what's known in Western culture, extended family is immediate family for us in our culture. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, my aunts and my mom, my grandmas and like my cousins are all like, we, we spend every day together. And especially for my, my family and I, we lived with my grandmother at my grandmother's house, like so the family house. So I just... I'm a very social person, I think, because I just grew up with the family, everyone, every day, all the time, which, you know, it really shaped a lot of my personality. It shaped shaped a lot of values that I believe in and like characteristics such as being generous, being kind, being thoughtful, also being fun and um, being grounded in family values. So a lot of my childhood is around like the community and the family love. I would also say Masyav's location near to the mountains. I have very close, created with for me a very close connection to nature. We, my dad used to go to the mountains every weekend and to go hunting or just to, you know, go on a hike. And I actually used to go with him. And I think that was our bond. Amongst my sister, I was the one who like loved to just be in the wilderness with my dad. And I mean, here for like the current politics, hunting doesn't sound amazing. But, you know, back in Mm. Moscow, it wasn't this politics and it wasn't hunting on a big scale or anything. It was just like an activity where... Hunting for what? Birds. Like, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> quails. Yeah. So, so I hunted quails back in the day. 
And, you know, it was really an amazing moment for my dad and I, and it's, it's major in our memories. And also like, mm -hmm. he taught me a lot of how to be with, in nature and like how to survive. And I love that as well. And the castle is just, it's a place where, it's a place of, of also like community gathering. I remember a lot, like it was the venue that would host all our events and festivals in mm -hmm. town. It was also the place where like, represented an opportunity to meet people outside of my town because pe tourists will come and I was fascinated at the time you know of like 10 years old Sana and Masyaf mm -hmm. never left Masyaf to be like oh there's someone who speaks English like there you know or even other people from other nationalities and so it was it was a place of curiosity and discovery and it's beautiful as a standing castle in itself. What was the relationship like between the different ethnic groups within the in the town? Because it's a small town of about twenty thousand people. Well, at the time it was. Yeah. Was it was there segregation, or were you all sort of at school together, mm. friends together? It's, it's. I mean, I mean, yeah. it's it's definitely not the painting that everyone likes to believe, or the regime mm. even try, you know, enforced of like being a multi-sectorial like city or town or even country in Syria and like everyone loved it. The regime and like it was, there was an architecture into how the regime segregated us. And I think that served very well, like the circuit, like, you know, the revolution going on and then eventually like the, what has turned into a war. So I wouldn't paint it as it was like, oh, we were all living like in peace and, and loving each other. There mm -hmm. was segregation, systematic segregation by the regime. A, a lot of, you know, like, yes, in neighborhoods and maybe in schools, we blended, but it wasn't like as it wasn't noticed. No, mm -hmm. you know, you know, immediately you identify someone as what background or like what ethnicity or, or sect they belong to. That didn't necessarily mean that you would treat them differently, but also sometimes, yes. So it was, but definitely, so just to be clear about like the dynamics of, and how it was both. And it was very well thought of like by the, the regime on the long term since the 70s. So I come from myself from a subsect called Ismailis and, you know, I was aware from young age that I, you know, there is like, there are, there are those sects and those groups. And I think if, it, if we really blended in a beautiful way, no one would be aware of those things. But the reality is everyone is aware. So clearly it manifests itself in daily life and daily dynamics and in, in everything we do in this town. And there were uh, moments in my upbringing during in, in Masyaf where conflicts had risen amongst groups. Mm -hmm. And I, again, I really, it all comes down to the way we're segregated and systematically by the Assad regime. And that being said, it, at the same time, yes, I, w I grew up around different like people and different from different religions and you know backgrounds, and so that I think contributed a lot to my acceptance and like embracing people for who they are. Because my family did not see this as as a you know a separation between us and other people. It was never part of my family upbringing or like politics or ways of ways of engaging with the community but it was like a more of a political awareness rather than a, a social mm -hmm. awareness that's informing our social dynamic with with other groups am i correct in saying that the regime favored the alawites as a way of retaining power and control I think it's like, I wouldn't say though, it's it's a very simple statement. That's, I think it's the most simplistic way of putting it. The Alawites themselves, unfortunately, actually many of them were like 
the mo- amongst the most marginalized because the also the regime wanted to keep big portion of their loyals marginalized so they could use them when the war happened. So actually many of them were very poor, didn't have mm. access, don't have access to education and really, yeah, really, really excluded in a way that excluded them from other communities, excluded them from having privileges in the system and kept them in a very segregated beliefs around the regime. And those are exactly the people, many of them, who when the revolution started became thugs. And just like yeah. went on and defended the regime subconsciously and really did horrible crimes. So I think they, in many ways, many Alawites are victims in themselves um, for the, by the Assad regime. Mm. Well, let's talk a bit about the regime and, and what, what led to the sort of the radical sort of change in how your, the direction your life took. I mean, it's often been referred to as a personalist dictatorship, Syria under Assad previously before. Bashar took over in 2000 by his father Hafaz, who was in power from the 1970s. I mean, you've talked a little bit about just the what was like was like in the sort of the controlling the sense of control that they had. But I just can't imagine. I can't think many people can imagine what it must have been like living under such a degree and level of censorship and oppression. But you'd said to me before that your father was very politically motivated and it was an active dissenter off the regime even before the Arab Spring. Um. So. Prior to that, that great moment in, of optimism that came forth with the Arab Spring was ignited during it. How did your, how did that early dissension of your father start to affect your worldview and your sense of self before Arab Spring? Yeah, I think, I think my father's or an like slash my parents' political thinking it's foundational to my upbringing from very early on you know I, ever since i could remember and i think it it's examples that immediately come to my mind is that one example when when you go to school in syria which our schools are really soviet style and mm-hmm. you know up until like very recently like 10 years ago or or a bit more we used to go to school with military uniform everyone yes wow really yes yes <laughs> and so I remember very well being in... I wouldn't have expected that. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Education was a big tool for indoctrination and, you know, uh, of indoctrination and internalized discipline in Syria. And so it was very well used. We all were in in military uniform for a long time. And like maybe in 2005 or something, we transitioned to a different uniform, but still in uniforms across all, all schools now you know, not only primary or elementary, also high school. And I remember, I think it was like in seventh grade or something where everyone just by default has to join the Ba'ath party, which is the regime and the only party, quote, quote, political party in Syria. And so they recruit young people. You are in school recruited when it's really by default, it's just like a paper you sign to, in tokenistic way, but like you're by default there, you know, what they call it like sprouts of Al-Ba'ath party. And I remember when we were given those forms, my sister and I refused to sign. And obviously, like, because we had discussion in the house with my dad and my dad did not want us to sign. And obviously, we don't believe in the Ba'ath party with the regime, so did not want to, to join. And that caused a whole thing with the school administration for my family. And, and I remember they, you know, asked my dad for a meeting and they met and they were like, you know, 
your daughters are refusing to sign. You should let them, like, you should encourage them to sign. And my dad was like, I don't force my daughters to do anything. So I remember from early on that, you know, we were supposed to assign to this public, you know, political political discourse or agenda, I would say, or propaganda even. And from early on, my dad was like empowering us enough to be like, no, if you don't want to sign, you don't sign. And and so that's like very, you know, that was, that was way before the revolution. What was your reaction to that, both from just your peers who presumably were going along with the, the pressure to sign and also from the authorities? You must have, you, was there no sort of fear? I mean, it got attention. It got attention. My dad has always been under the, the attention of the intelligence in, in our town or in, the, in our province. So it wasn't anything new. I think, you know, the Assad regime knew exactly what everyone was doing and what everyone thinks. Obviously, you know, we grew up in a very surveillant uh, country, but it was, you know, it's really come down to the extent they let you be or not. And I think at the time, the school itself also did not want to make a bigger deal of it, knowing that the consequences could be really dramatic for my family and I. So also, I would say like the administration let go of it a bit and my peers and my friends, you know, some shared the same thinking, like their parents, similar to my parents, had the same thinking and others did not even understand why, you know, had no critical or political thinking that it did not mean anything that this happened. So, you know, we had both reactions. And besides this, like, like very memorable incident for me, like Palestine and the Antifadas, that were happening on the first and especially, I guess, the second Intifada and the Iraq war. All of these were very huge events for my family and I, where it was really, I grew up going to protests and solidarity also protests in, with Palestine and Iraq. And so, you know, that those conversations about like, the pan-Arab identity and about like the, the conflict in Israel and Palestine and the Iraq war have been like part of really my upbringing in addition to keep talking about what's happening in Syria and then kind of the dictatorship we're living in so that was all so in my private space which my family created it in our house or in small small groups with their communities where we can talk about those things at the very same time in the public space and the public sphere I knew and I understood exactly from early on of what I talk about what I don't talk about and there's a joke you know we joke in Syria saying that Every single person has someone watching over them. For every single Syrian, there's a single like thug or an, an intelligent. And so, and this is something really is just part of everyone's upbringing. And some of us become very, you know, it becomes very normalized that you're not even thinking about it. And it's just, you don't, you don't question it. And others question it. And obviously my family and I questioned it a lot. And that also because of our opinions, we had to. To protect and I had to to protect my dad so my dad will you know will hold certain political groups meetings in our apartment and I knew exactly when this was happening and I knew exactly you know like how you disconnect the phone and you take it outside of the room and I knew exactly if someone knocks the door like what to say and what to talk on the phone what you don't say so it was like from early on this natural navigation of like public and private sphere because of protection and understanding exactly what could entail to be known as a dissenter at, at Syria's at sad Syria. And one question I've got is you talk about the Baptist Party. Under Saddam Hussein, he had the Baptist Party. Is there a connection there between yes. the two 
Yes, there was a connection and then they kind of dis- disconnected and created two different parties between Syria and Iraq. But it's the same, you know, in theory or in principle, a lot of those parties were founded for maybe better reasons than actually um, what they end up being and the, and the way they were used. And, you know, I, I guess the major thing is also they, in Syria, at least it was really the main, no, one and only party. And, and there was no, like other political parties were not really allowed in, in reality. You know, the regime would argue, oh no, we allow like for, for the diversity in the political spectrum. But in reality, this is not. So yeah. Because it is the one thing, the complaint, I don't think many people have a, a, a deep appreciation of the, the, the deep complexities of the Middle Eastern politics and the makeup. I mean, the fact that Iran is now a major supporter of, of the Syrian regime, you know, truly secular regime yet the very non-secular Iran with its revolutionary guard are there side by side with Assad and obviously the Russians because of legacy reasons but or maybe we could talk a bit about that from the, the Arab Spring I mean I think everyone around the world was caught somewhat off guard by seeing the massive uprisings that happened in in Egypt and in Tunisia in 2011 with the overthrow of Mubarak and the and the final wave that just spread throughout the Middle East of hope and expectation that these regimes of great dictatorships, and many of them put in place by the West post the Second World War and under colonial, colonial, colonialist rule, would be swept away. And that the new generation, driven by social media and a sense of optimism, would take over. And although there were, for a short time, there was that happening in, in different countries from obviously from Tunisia all the way to the United Arab Emirates. There was a counter reaction to it. Could you talk a bit about what it was like in Syria during those optimistic years and then what led to the direction changing and the challenges you faced of being detained and the personal pain and loss that you suffered as a result? I think the, the Arab Spring, absolutely a very historic a significant moment because I mean not only for the people in the region because considering the oppression we never thought it will actually come to a point that people across the region will rise and protest but also I think a lot of outsiders were shocked at the fact um, that this is happening and and it's a huge for so many reasons but definitely for the fact that this region you know has gone through many colonizers and then those colonizers left dictators who have kept their infrastructure and their their regimes in a very, very tight and, and kept people under so much oppression and starved people to, to the extent that people are so busy surviving to not be able even to be to have political thinking and to eat or to dissent, not to generalize, but you know, really regimes in the Asian are very smart of having strategy to tackle the the, the citizen from all aspects of life to not be able to dissent. An example would be actually like in Syria and many of the Arab countries, we grew up where the intelligent centers are actually intelligence centers are in the middle of the cities and cities downtowns and, and it, so they, it's actually placed in a, at the center of the country so we never forget so if you think think about it you just look at that building and you know exactly and you've heard stories about the horror that goes in there and then you change your mind so for you know all those reasons that the Arab Spring is has been really significant and I have to say I personally Super grateful. And I feel very lucky to be 
part of that, to have witnessed that, to have been part of it, to really be part of the revolution generation. And I remember very well when the protests started in Tunisia and then in Egypt, sitting down with my family, especially with my dad and my sister and watching the TV. And the moment that Saddam Hussein, sorry, the moment that Mubarak um, of Egypt stepped down, I saw my dad crying for the first time. I think for my dad, as at 50 years old at the time, who had been a dissenter, you know, ever since he could remember and had been, you know, mobilizing and really working underground, very low profile with risking his life and his family lives. This moment was huge for him. And it was huge for us too, not only because of our own experience, but also seeing the impact of it and knowing how huge it was. And it really was a very, I remember being in very high spirits, you know, during the early days of the Arab Spring and Syria was no different. People, so many people in Syria were aware of the, of the amount of oppression. And, you know, it had, everyone was fed up. So many people were fed up. And as a result, it was also organic that so many people went down to the streets similar to Egypt and Tunisia and protested the regime. Because of the control and the iron grip that Assad had on the regime and the, and the, and the media as well, when it happened, what, were, what was the central media saying? Presumably it was there to try and discourage you from joining the, the Arab Spring. Yeah, I mean, there wasn't a moment of like, oh, someone was talking to someone and it was just when people, when, when it's a street movement and mm-hmm. when a street movement happens, nothing can stop it, including the, the same thugs that in every single protest, they were there. They came after people, beating people up, detaining them, torturing them, releasing them or killing them. So this was from early on the first protest in Syria in March 2011. Some people were shot and others were detained. So, and before the pro, it didn't need a protest. The point is that it did not need a protest for anyone to be detained and to disappear in Syria. Mm-hmm. Did not need that. And if anything, of course, when you go to a protest, every time you leave your house, it's a life or death. Like you might come back, you might not. And I think, and I always want to talk about this, trying to put things to context to people here in the US, especially before Black Lives Matter protest, is that a protest in Syria or like in our region is not even it's not legal. It's not a protest. It's sometimes it's a minute when like we pretend we're walking down the streets and we agree someone will like shout like freedom, freedom, and mm-hmm. we'll gather for 30 seconds where like the thugs immediately because the, the thugs are They're all everywhere. over the country and blended in civic closing amongst us. The thugs will show up with their guns and their sticks and will come after us and you will get detained and you get killed and that's it. So going to a protest was it's still very dangerous and we don't have the right for it. And obviously, like with Black Lives Matter protests this year, we've seen that it's coming to the U.S. too. It's the same mm. in the U.S. It's not that much of a difference, which was very interesting for me, you know, to go to a protest here and like compare the feelings and the sense of safety. Still way more privileged here, mm-hmm. but definitely not as safe as one would have thought. And so, yeah, early on in Syria, again, like from the first day, the regime showed all its weapons and all its potential tactics and techniques Mm -hmm. and people knew exactly what they're walking into but when you're grounded in when when you're grounded in the belief of justice of freedom of like your right 
for dignity. I think dignity is really what was was taken from the Syrian citizen. We were not treated with dignity at all. It's really not about the economics. A lot of people like to assign it to that. It's really not, it's not even um, just an elite intellectual revolution. No, it's the dignity that every single human has right to. And this was taken from us. So from that, those moments in March 2011, all the way to, I mean, you come to like 2013, these protests were spreading. They were increasing in regularity, but increasingly violent. And that's opened up sort of, it, it took a different path in Syria than other nations and essentially erupted into, I suppose, it was the beginnings of the civil war as different factions stood up and, and came in alliances, sometimes alliances from very different groups but together with a common enemy of uh, the Assad regime. During that, that period, I mean, you were, one of being treated as, from your sense of being on the ground, why it happened the way it happened, but also at the same time, you were still studying, I believe, mm -hmm. and still had you know, hopes, ambitions for a career and a life in Syria. And then it took a sort of a twist that resulted in you coming to the U.S., for a civic engagement. So maybe you could just talk about that arc of time and why things played out the way they did. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that it's hard to label the Syrian war with a specific label. I, I see it as a multi-layered conflict. It has gone through many um, phases. I would start with it being, in, and I would say like the umbrella of it is a, re a revolution. The ground of it is a revolution. It did start as a people's revolution, period. People unarmed went down to the streets, claimed the streets, were met with violence from the, from the government, from the regime. And at the time, I was 19 years old. And in that phase of protest and organizing, yeah, the hopes were so high. And maybe, especially for me, I can't speak for the public, but maybe for me, it was naive of like underestimating the power of this regime and also like the geopolitics and the allies that would come into the picture. I mean, honestly, who knew at the time? Yeah. Even analysts in DC did not anticipate that this will happen. And so I'm not sure like how much also like it was naive, but yes, we were driven by the values as, a, as public protesting. We're driven by really a lot of hopes and it brought us together. The protest and the revolution brought so many Syrians across the country together who the regime worked for 40 years to segregate. So it's actually, it was a moment of connection between people from Hama and Halab and Idlib and Qamishli and Dimashq and Daya, all those cities in Syria, rather what the regime had been doing for years of separating us and like, really, we hear just bad things about each other. And so that it was a moment of connection. It was a moment of bonding and it was a moment to come together. And we had high hopes. And what happened is that because of the increased violence from the Assad regime, especially early on, naturally, people, locals and neighborhoods got rifles, like mm -hmm. very like simple weapons to protect their own neighborhoods. So it started as protection. It did not. I mean, the Assad regime walked into Daya in 2011 with, you know, in air jets and like with an army. People had rifles. It, the, the revolution was not yet funded. It was, it was really just like local effort for protection. Mm -hmm. And I, and I welcome that. I mean, 
put yourself, everyone who want to speak about nonviolence, like protesting or, I mean, put yourself in anyone's shoes when like someone is walking into your house to rape you or rape your family and like slaughter you. Mm-hmm. If I had the right, I would defend myself and my family. And it was really started with that. It started with just complete self-defense, very simple weapons. And obviously the Assad regime, you know, used way more complicated techniques. And that eventually escalated where then I would say escalated to a civil war. So we had a phase, I would say, between um, late 2011 or early 2012 to 2013, a year of a civil war where it was... You know, Syrians are actually like clashing with other Syrians, not in all places in Syria and some places. But why this was happening, this layer of a civil war was happening already. External allies and external actors were intervening. So right. even I don't know if it's a year, to be fair, it's maybe a month where then groups from Saudi Arabia and the Gulf countries and the U.S. jumped in and were like, we're going to fund the opposition or the rebels. It was at that time the Free Syrian Army, which caused, yeah. it wasn't even organized. It was like local neighborhood self-initiative. And they claimed those groups to support them. And similarly, Russia intervened, China and Iran, and went to, and took the Assad regime side. And then geopolitics intervened and it became a proxy war, a World War Three, if you want to call it, a Cold mm. War season two on a Syrian soil. It's all labels, but a civil war. And the problem is that until now, the U.S. mainstream media, the U.S. Congress, the the, the European Union, everyone, the public talks about it as a civil war. Mm -hmm. And that's very dangerous because a civil war is when like locals are clashing. Syrians left Syria. Syrians killed, displaced. It's really now Russia and Iran and the U.S., and different groups fighting on a Syrian soil. So, and obviously it takes accountability away from international actors. It's way easier to say it's a civil war. We respect the sovereignty of a country. We shouldn't intervene Hmm. versus to say we already intervened. We already have boots on the ground and we are part of this and we should take responsibility of it. No one says what's happening. As a result, the publics in those countries, in Western countries, not many of them understand that their countries are already involved. And then you find those even like liberal leftists protesting anti-war and like non-intervention in Syria. And I'm like, dude, you've been there since 2013. What are you talking about? So it's really frustrated us who now who activists who've been displaced to have to not only counter people who actually support the regime and believe it's propaganda, to also counter people who are against any of those countries actually doing something against the Assad regime because they think we don't want another Iraq. Because obviously it's very easy. It's more simpler and easy to think of it as an Iraq than to admit the reality and to hear what locals and activists want. I mean, I suppose the sort of the, 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 I want to talk about your specific journey in the US, but when you talk about it being Cold War, a World War III and played out in Syria as a microcosm, I mean, you have got these different actors, whether it be Russia, China, Iran, the US, everyone's got a vested interest in what happens. And if we look at Syria as a part of the, the foundation of a house of cards, 
if Syria changes, someone has to control that change. If it either comes if it's if it's status quo, it's Russia keep Assad and maintain that sort of that the regime and their interests in that sort of their geopolitical interests. But from what I can see and of what I, my limited understanding, I don't see any emergent or group that is there to actually establish the the yeah. rights of Syria and the people and create a, a, a genuinely independent nation. Everyone's trying to control it from a geopolitical standpoint to then affect the greater geopolitical makeup of the rest of the Middle East, which is tragic because essentially Syria and its people are just pawns in a massive game, geopolitical game, which is utterly tragic and despicable, but and that more people should be talking about it in the media. But let's talk about your your shift to the US during this time. You managed to secure a six-week placement at Georgetown, I believe, on the civic engagement program. It sounded sounds quite a serendipitous opportunity to escape at that point in time, the violence and the and the upheaval that was actually happening. Could you maybe just talk about how that emerged and the experience and what your expectations were at that point? I, I mean, first, in terms of the I think everyone always, when we talk about Syria, asks about the alternative. And I, it's, it's very, I find it very interesting that like, I always say like amongst 20 millions, there is no alternative to one person and one regime. Like I am the alternative. I would like to run for elections in Syria. Anyone has a problem? I am the alternative. We don't need to look far. Like many of us are the alternative and it's about actually being supported. It's not about the lack of it. So just to comment on that point. And then the second point of terms of coming to the U.S., when this opportunity, you know, arisen for me, it wasn't an escape at all. If anything, I had been released from detention. I had, my family had been released from detention. I was at this moment of, you know, it's a life or death. I'm in Syria. And the worst happened when you get detained and you could get detained again and tortured and raped and disappeared and killed. But I was fearless at the time, actually, when this opportunity came to me in, in 2013. And it was, I, I, as I always share, it was very random. It was a, a friend, an activist friend who told me that a friend of his in the American embassy who had been shut down actually at the time in Syria, but were looking very low profile, looking to like activists and, and people who might be a good fit for this leadership and civic engagement program. He shared with me the application and he said, it's due tomorrow if you're interested. And I really did not, I don't think I understood what it was really even. I applied to that and I, I really think I was naive even. I, and now in retrospect, I'm like, I don't remember like what I said, like how, what, what interested me, but probably in my like young mind at the time, something interested me and it seemed right fit. And my father was, and my, <clears throat> my family were, were very encouraging. And my, our thinking was that it's six weeks of program and go, like, these are like skills we need. We're rebuilding a country from the beginning. We're rebuilding, we're like at the time and whatever you learn could be helpful for us. So that was really the thinking. And I came for I actually traveled to Lebanon to get visa because, as I said, the embassy was shut down. And I flew to the U.S. and I was the first to leave my, my the country in my family, both sides, like to any wow. Western country. No one had made it. And it was like, you know, big deal. But it was very low profile at the same time. So I couldn't say bye to anyone. I didn't say I was going to the U.S. to not put my family in, in danger because... Especially at the time, the regime had been playing the propaganda that the revolution is funded by Israel and the U.S. 
And so me being in the US would like put my family in danger. So no one knew when I first left. Did, so you so you didn't fly from um, Syria, no. you flew from Lebanon. I flew from Lebanon. Everyone knew I was going to Lebanon, just normally. Yeah. And from Lebanon, I got a visa and I flew from Lebanon. And yeah. until ten, 10 days or um, a bit over a week into my arrival, my father was forcibly disappeared by the Assad regime on July 2nd, 2013. And I received this news via a Facebook message from my sister, as brief as he's taken, we're leaving. And, you know, that was the moment that changed my life. It was, it was a huge, it continues to be a huge moment. My father is still missing as we speak today for almost eight years now. When I say missing, and I also want to put it into context into here in this environment in the U.S., he's not like legally detained. It's not like he's in a prison and we can talk to him and we know he's alive. It's not like anything. It's someone kidnapped by our own regime. and. That's it. The regime won't admit that he has him. And, you know, this could be it. And it's not new to any, to the regime at all or any of these dictatorships. It's a practice, very strategic. They always, you know, kidnapping and forced, for, um, forced disappearance of political activists. It's a strategy that dictatorships have used for decades to not only oppress the person, but to scare their families and to make it a wound that's always open. There's mm. no closure in such kind of disappearance. We have cases in Syria where people actually showed up after like 30 years to their families. Wow. And we have people who never, their families lived and died and generations came after and no one knew of their life when they lived, when they died. No one knew anything about them. And that's what we deal with as families of the disappeared. That's what we deal with on daily basis. We grapple with this complex grief and certain and ended and no one talks about it. You know, when we talk about the situation in Syria, no one thinks about the detainees and the forcibly disappeared. You know, on the best case scenario, we talk about refugees, which is good, but we have mm -hmm. people who might be alive who are evident of war crimes. And no one talks about it. And every time you want to talk about it, even in political conversations about Syria, they say it's too sensitive of a file because it is a life evidence of war crimes and would be held against the regime. And so it's, it's a file that's like humanitarianism are not accepting it. And like, it's not politicized enough. So my family and I, this is very important for us. And my sister especially does a lot of activism. And we continue to speak up about this, not only for my father, for the over 130 forcibly disappeared men, women, kids, elderly in Syria, and not only by the Assad regime, by all different groups. Yeah, given it's, as you say, it's a well-worn practice from many dictatorship, from you know, you think back to the Chilean dictatorship of Pinochet. It happened in Argentina. It's happened in Eastern Europe. It's happened, obviously, in Asia on multiple occasions. And as you say, in multiple groups, not just of the Assad regime in Syria, but across the Middle East. Why is it that, that given there's such a history of it, that groups like Human Rights Watch aren't making this more of an issue? to raise awareness of it. I mean they I mean they try and they are but it is we engage actually with Amnesty and Human Rights Watch and the Syria campaign and other groups around 
advocacy around for um, forced disappearance, but it's not a priority on that those who make decisions agendas. And let's mm-hmm. be clear: the conversation about Syria is not with Syrians. Like Syrians are barely in in those spaces where when where, where talks happen, and and Syrians that who represent Syria, not Syrians who like packed and paid for by like Saudi and Qatar and USA and the people, people from the streets are not part of these th- discourses. And trying to like people like me. Trying to reclaim spaces in all different ways to have the conversation about Syria. So I don't want like to undermine anyone's or organization effort around the file, but it's definitely the file. It's not a priority. Mm-hmm. Okay, you your priorities since getting to the states and and remaining there after that six weeks of your father right. disappeared, your mother and your sister fled Syria. I believe one. Went to they went to Turkey and one is in Germany and they're now subsequently in Canada. Can you talk about that 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 period of transition in your life and the cha- challenges it must have been? Because to be thrown into a country where you knew no one, where you had no resources, with the uncertainty that you faced, presumably little money and little help, how did you survive and and and, and go on an incredible sort of transition to ending up? studying political science at Bard. I mean, it's it's quite an extraordinary story. Yeah, and many, you know, there are many people out there who have such stories as well. And I mean, for me, it was, it was, I mean, I think of my life as before my dad's detention and disappearance uh-huh. and after. And not only because of the significance of that on terms of trauma and emotionally and like loss, this new loss of a parent and a family member, but also because of its implications on my whole life. When I came here, as I said, I I came with a carry-on for six weeks and I suddenly found myself lost a family member, my country, my friends, my community, the revolution, being part of the on the ground and me part of the revolution. And I found myself literally almost on the streets, no money, no legal documents, medium level of language, not knowing what I am going to do in my life. Am I staying here? Not knowing if my moms and my sisters are going to survive in Turkey, how they're going to survive in Turkey. I mean, it was, and I was 22 years old at the time. It's the loss of everything. Like you're literally starting from the scratch on many levels. I think what I had was my values, the values that my family kind of, brought me and planted in me and those values and what I believe in and like feeling always empowered just was my only weapon honestly mm-hmm. my, was my only way of survival of being focused on well we knew this gonna happen it's unfortunate it was gonna happen but once this revolution started we knew it's life or death we knew we we're gonna lose like I'm not the first I'm not the last people lost so many things in Syria and you know I had to survive I really did not have time. And we live in a country, in a systems in the Western countries where mental health is luxury. So mm-hmm. I had no time to process my dad's disappearance. I have no time to process any of these laws. I had to immediately think about survival, which I still do. I would say like up until last year, I was barely sur- like only surviving. And now I'm like doing more than that, which so many people do. And I survived also because of community support. I randomly met strangers who housed me and let me stay on their couches. And uh, I was in D.C. at the time for my first year in the U.S. 
And I remember I toured around 13 couches of strangers in less than a year. And the way it was happening is that I met like someone through my program who housed me for two weeks and then they couldn't house me on their couch more. So they transferred me to their friends who I did not know who let me stay for two weeks and transferred me to their friends, etc. And in that way, incredible generosity spirit, very incredible generosity. Mm. Mm. And at the same time, that's how I built my community. That's how I met the people I met. And, you know, it's incredible generosity it was still like very hard for me. I was, I needed actually like mm-hmm. a door to close. I had no room or like a, a door that I could close everywhere. I'm staying on couches for a year. I had no space to process physical space, to process anything, to cry, to, mm-hmm. I just had to put on a face and a show and to just focus on survival. And, you know, at the same time, like you're just expected to, so many of you is expected as a refugee and as an, as a woman and as an immigrant and all of it, you know, you have to be grateful and you have to have the positive attitude and you have to, so many things expected of you and you have to survive and all of that. And so I don't, I mean, yes, I did it. I don't wish it to my enemies, <laughs> to be honest. No one has to, I mean, there's so much like romanticizing and like an admiration around this. Yes. I'm resilient. I wish no one has to be that. No one has Mm -hmm. to do experience that. And I think our thinking shouldn't be about only like celebrating one's resiliency, about making sure that no one has to experience that. that And it was hard. And again, like, yes, I am grateful for the community support for my family, like upbringing and all of that. But it was very difficult. And eventually I was, you know, connected with the right people as I was able to seek political asylum in the US and I was granted one gratefully and I did all survival jobs of you know au pairing and housekeeping and like working in a restaurant and everything you could think of to to have dignity in my living Mm -hmm. as much as possible in the US and then once I once I started I think nine months into my arrival I started thinking about what's next for me Mm -hmm. it was not I was I was boiling from inside wanting to do I just came out of a revolution. I had so much I wanted to give. I had so much I wanted to do. And I also knew I don't have the tools. I didn't have the language enough. And I don't have like the accreditation and the system that would allow me to take a take role, active role. So I figured I have to get to school. I have to go back and presume my education. I had studied in Syria business for four years. And I, through the Institute of International Education, IIE, I found Mm -hmm. that Bard College had offered a scholarship at the time for a person of first displacement background. And I applied, uh, I was given the scholarship. And so a year into my, you know, journey, tough journey, yet good journey in DC, I transitioned to New York um, and I started at Bard College, which and transitioned my credits. So I did two years. And I think this is when I had for the first time a door. I had a room Mm -hmm. in the door. I closed the door. And I could, you know, process and feel and bar this in a such a remote place. So it actually gave me the opportunity being with mm. nature, reminder of home, reminder of myself. Also, like not having to worry about food and shelter anymore definitely gave me some room to start breathing and realizing what happened with the loss. Not fully, mm. because I also, and then I was, you know, had to grapple with a new culture and being in an American college, the language, you know, the homework, 
all of those things, which I'm very grateful for because I think Bard gave me a lot of my, a lot of tools for my activism right now and for who I am. It gave me the language. It gave me the critical thinking. It gave me a community. I met so many people who are now chosen family in my life through Bard. And it gave me credentials that helped me move forward and think about what is my role now that I left Syria? How can I contrib- contribute to Syria and to now my new identity um, of being forcibly displaced person? How can I contribute to the displaced communities and make sure that also we are treated with dignity? Um, you use the... Um... The term dignity has come up a lot and the fact that you mentioned that in Syria the real issue was dignity had been denied or removed and you came to the US and lacked the dignity but you've over time you've established it and you've grown and and discovered that and and, and yet I've read a quote from you that said I've left Syria but I'm not free the fight starts when you flee but it doesn't have to end so you've when you talk, you've you've created some a sense that you've you've you feel you have dignity, but you don't feel free. I'd love you to talk about that, and um, yeah. and maybe just provide a little context for people that have never been oppressed, that have never been persecuted, never been forcibly displaced. What that lack loss of freedom actually feels like, what it means to you, and you know right. how do you use that to build inner strength, but also use it as a way to fuel your activism to help others. Yeah, I mean, for me, dignity comes from the sense of agency and ownership. When you have agency over your lives, which sounds like everyone has agency. That's like, no, actually, many people don't have agency over their lives. We don't have agency over what you say and what you don't say, over your thinking, over uh, what you do or not, what's expected of you. So many refugees, obviously, they depend on the system in many ways. And the system does not give them tools to have agency, rather like just to depend on the system more, which takes agency away as a result, which takes dignity away. You know, everyone has the right for their lives and to shape it and to think about it and to live it as they wish. It's really just as simple as that. That's how I see agency. And this simple right is taken. It's taken from people in oppressed communities. It's taken from refugees all around the world. And so for me, when I came here, some some aspects of the life here gave me sense of dignity some mm-hmm. but many especially at the beginning did not such as well i came here and i noticed the same as a woman as a person of color and as uh you know as a refugee we are excluded and we face different type of discrimination and oppression yeah it's inherent in the system as well here so i was like okay well we left syria and it's not only like I'm, you're surviving as a human here, which means like actually the journey is starting on top of your previous journey. You're also dealing with the new country systems of oppression. Not only the country as as a person of displacement, as a refugee, you're dealing also like with global systems of oppression about some people that oppress refugees. It's beyond like your country. You know, there's like an agency that's supposed to be helping you, UNSCR. And they have their own ways of discrimination and taking your agency away. And I felt excluded from making decisions about my own lives. I really was in so many, so many discussions, events, community gatherings, panels, what you want, programs of people designing solutions for refugees without refugees, without us. Like people who never experienced any of that, 
who have the best intentions. Here, it's not about intentions. We're, we're past intentions. It's about the impact. It's about 2021. It, it was 2015 and 2016 at the time. This is not okay. And it was still, we're systematically excluded. So that again, like the frustration of not feeling the agency and our ability to take part of shaping our environment, shaping our lives, also drive, drove me at the time and continues to drive me to engage in the, in the work that I do, whether it's about reclaiming the narrative around refugees in Syria, whether it's about shaping, carving out spaces and global discussions for refugees, um, or whether it's about like actually moving money and funding mm. those who are on the ground and doing significant work for their communities. I, there's so many people that have been forcibly displaced. That have, some have had greater opportunity than others, but you've, you've grasped this opportunity and gone beyond survival and building that sort of sense of dignity, as you say. You've, when you talk about that sort of lack of agency, that it isn't just, you know, extends to refugees that have been forcibly re relocated, whether it be in Germany or whether it be in France, the UK, the US, all of them are, are get pigeonholed and sort of, um, you know, you have the, the stigma that goes with it, with people's um, xenophobia and all the fear that comes with nations resisting it. And yet the reality is we know that diverse communities are made up of people that for generations have been refugees that have traveled internationally. Yet when it's forcible dislocation and, 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 and relocation is different because it's not that, as you said, the agency has been taken away from someone saying, I'm leaving Eastern Europe to go to America. This is actually forcible. Yeah. That comes with it, as you've des described, as a systematically being being systematically silenced. What gave you the idea to say, "I want to create a platform to give voice to these people"? Because um, you, you, I mean, you've obviously gone through a massive sort of transformation, personal transformation yourself. But you formed, I believe, in two thousand seventeen, something called the the, the Network for Refugee Voices. Yeah. Where did that come from and what, what, what gave you the belief and the strength and the conviction that it was you that had to do this and not someone else? Yeah, it wasn't only me. It, was, it has always been a collective effort. I think for me, it was there is power in one's story and there is a change, bigger change in collective story and collective mm -hmm. action. And I witnessed that in Syria. You know, you could be at the center and like, you know, do your own activism. And then when, but when people come together, change happens. And for me, that was it. I mean, at the beginning, when I started doing something, I was doing a lot of storytelling and public speaking in the US in 2014, 15, and, you know, around xenophobia and, and reclaiming the narrative of who is a refugee and what is the solution. And, you know, after that, I, you know, realized that First, I love to work with groups and I am not like I am one story and yeah, change needs like collective action. So started thinking about what, like, how can I take my, my own frustration with exclusion and understand it on a bigger scale? And once you do that, you, I mean, and I know it's systematic. It's everywhere. Mm -hmm. All, all communities, all refugees around the world, from Colombia to Uganda to Lebanon to Indonesia, experience the same exclusion, even refugees in Europe and the US. So it was a matter of connecting with other like-minded persons of first displacement and 
together. It was just with the support of some allies, we're able to come together in 2017 and really share our experiences and our frustrations. And from that frustration, creating a strategy. And at the time it was, because it was very, it was a new agenda, a new advocacy agenda to be like, let's talk about the right for self-representation and inclusion for refugees, which every time, especially at the beginning, when I talk about it, it sounds for everyone, me like, yeah, that's obvious. Of course, people have to be part of the solution. And I'm like, right? But they are not. And they have not been for 70 years. This system has been put in place by white men in Geneva and New York, 1951. Never been questioned ever since. Billions of dollars. Their solutions is camps without basic rights. And it's an extension of colonialism. And yes, it's obvious, but it's not happening. And no one is questioning it. And so we came and we questioned it. So many, not to also undermine previous efforts, probably so many advocacy efforts happened throughout the d- decades. But I think all of that led to us and other groups. And together we started just saying, I always say I was stating the obvious. I'm not genius. I was just stating the obvious and saying this is not okay. We need to change it. And that my voice alone wasn't enough. So collectively it was a stronger voice. And uh, still, you know, you can imagine the system is inherently rooted in exclusion and problematic, you know, structural racism and so mm-hmm. and bias. And so it's not an easy battle and it continues to be a lot of advocacy and a lot of like, you have to prove yourself. It's so funny. So interesting. From the first time I spoke until today, always the question that we get as refugees is people question our legitimacy. Oh, so now you speak on behalf of refugees. I'm like, you spoke on behalf of refugees as a non-refugee <laughs> for 70 years. If an INGO comes, you would never question their legitimacy. If anyone comes, you won't. And the first question that we get asked when we talk about what forcibly displaced communities might want is like, so who you are, who elected you, or like, are you now representing refugees? It's so interesting, the question of legitimacy and how this is the, th- the only thing people want to target. And so we are against a system that's really problematic. And, and, and I have to say, it has come a long way. In the past seven years of this advocacy, many groups have come together. And I think after the Network for Refugee Voices, with the Global Refugee-led network, and then so many other networks. And for me, what has been very important and amazing, the fact that people know they can organize. And people, they are organizing. And in all different ways, carving out spaces for themselves. And I very much emphasize that we should not try to unify people under one umbrella. Everyone loves that. Everyone wants that. He's like, give me one person to talk to. I just want to talk. We should accept that. People will have different tools of activism and advocacy and people will come with different agendas. It's not about what people, like the, the content of what people want. It's about everyone having the right for inclusion the right to say what they think their lives want to be and in their own in their own language and in their own tools. Yeah, and that's is interesting that you say that the given what you've talked about in in relation to your experience on the ground in in, in Syria of the importance of individuals coming together as a collective and only action happens there. In the same way you're there's a parallel here that it's only going to happen as a result of a coalition or collective action under no one sort of banner. 
But I suppose we, we as organizations and as just humans, we like banners and we like simplification and we like to cut through com- apparent complexity. And particularly organizations like the UN and, and you know, you've, you've attended summits in New York and, and yeah. created sort of action. Where do you think you are right now with this in terms of the, you talk about the progress you've made. Is there still work to be done? Or do you feel more optimistic that the, the, those systematically silenced are now beginning to assert their voice in this narrative and, and take control? Or do yeah. you see there's still a lot of work to be done? Oh, I think it's both. We've made a great progress and there's a lot to be done. It's very tricky to, to think that we made like more, you know, to give this progress mm-hmm. more credits than it, it deserves because we have, we are dealing with systems of 70 years old. So, you know, uprooting that and changing it is going to take some time. And you cannot think of this issue without the intersectionality of all current politics and movements. But yes, we have a lot to work on, yet we did make progress. I like to think of myself as a movement builder. And in, in a movement, I like to be part of a movement that is inclusive of everyone, that is representative and everyone knows that they could be part of it. They not a part of it even. Like like they have sense of ownership over it. Yeah. And it, like there is no exclusion and everyone like has avenues to to participate. What I try to do is create avenues, whether like through directly working with the people or, you know, engaging in a policy or something that would create an avenue for people to have access. And then then, you know, after that was like initially my thinking. After that I deeper into my thinking started of like but what's preventing people once you create the avenue of coming forward? And this is exactly what I'm doing right, right now with Astanam Access, is thinking about, well, what are the barriers that people, when you give an opportunity, when the UNHCR says, okay, well, come engage with us on a certain policy or it's come talk to us, why people are not coming forward? It has mm-hmm. to do, barriers has to do with bias. There is a, you know, there is bias in the system against people of forced displacement. It has to do with, structural barriers people logistically can't travel and those meetings and those events don't come to them even though it's about them but they don't come to them people different languages if you're not versed with mm-hmm. of what i call white dominant professional culture it's so hard for a donor to talk to you or to trust you all the funding for local refugee-led organization it has the risk approach versus the trust approach somehow they trust giving an ingo a hundred million dollar Mm-hmm. That, you know, a million dollars goes to their president's salary every year. Yet yeah. they find it hard to give a local organization that is grounded in the community, born out of the community, deliver solutions with dignity because we are the same people, don't leave their communities when the pandemic hit. They find it very difficult for them to give them actually funding that would go a long way. So... I see those t- those dynamics yeah, right now. I mean, that's, I think yeah. I think that I think that is just sorry to interject, but I think that is just the again the the legacy of the whole NGO philanthropic sector that it's as you say, and it's what we've inherited. You know, you look at I don't know if you've read the book by Anand Giordardis called Winners Take All. Well, he really rips into the philanthropic sector and the, those people doing doing good by doing better by doing good that nothing really changes it just reinforces the old structures and makes people feel good 
And I think that's just the reality that you've got these donors that have been conditioned to think and to give these unrestricted grants to these organizations that have established some form of proxy for trust mm-hmm. over the years and because of good media manipulation, good theories of change and, and spinning the results. So I think you are, you know, you're creating your own mini revolution within a sector. Yes. And changing and transforming and creating a sense of disruption in it really to the the traditional forces so you're always going to find that that pushback and it will clearly it will take time in relation to that i mean you've you've mentioned asylum access maybe people don't know what that is so maybe you could just explain how asylum access emerged how you took up your role there and and then talk about the amazing award and grant that you won from what's called Larson Lamb Iconic Impact Award last year and how that might help transform the what you're trying to do or accelerate what you're trying to do. Right, yes. Yeah, I mean in my in my like the last eight years in the US, as I said, you know, I've always been thought about like adapting my advocacy tools and my my ways of working to what needs to happen and i transitioned from just doing like from mainly doing a lot of narrative and public speaking and storytelling into also adding to that collectively creating networks with other refugees and doing a lot of advocacy and i think by 2020 so almost um, a year and a half ago i started thinking about the implementation of this vision it's one thing to advocate for something and to say in theory what needs to be done. And for me, it was like, I, I want like more something tangible. And especially mm-hmm. when you are building a new movement, everyone asks you for evidence all the time. It's an evidence-driven sector, could be debated, but everyone asks you for this. So I met Asylum Access at that time as an organization that is not refugee-led, yet an, an, it's an organization that is U.S. based and registered, and we don't work actually in the U.S. We are a family of nationally led and run local organizations in Mexico, Thailand, and Malaysia that work on refugee rights. And we mm-hmm. also have global programs. And what attracted me about Asylum Access and what made it a good match between me and them, I would say two things. Their mandate is grounded in believing that the solution is refugee rights, is rights-based solution. Mm-hmm. It's not about food. It's not about shelter. It's about rights. And this is exactly at the core of who I am. Rights give people agency and people take over ownership over their lives and rebuild it with dignity. Food and shelter for 70 years does not do this. And so believe like that being Asylum Access Mandate was really important for me. And the second thing is also part of this mandate and part of those rights is the right for inclusion and self-representation. Self-representation is just a right like any other human right. And Asylum Access believed because of the model of having local led and run organizations in Mexico, Thailand, and Malaysia, always believed that the solution is local. Mm-hmm. The solution doesn't come from outsiders. So this combination of these two things and the third one, I would add to it then, the questions that they came up with as we had the conversations about me working with them. They were asking the right questions. They were asking, how can we do better? Who we are in this sector? How are we contributing mm-hmm. to the current dynamics? Are we part of, of colonialism? If not, if so, how do we change that? What is our organization role? So it was the right, they asked the right questions and they had already dedicated 
resources for a change. And they understood that change takes an internal structural change, leadership change in asylum access to actually reflect on our work and eventually reflect on the sector. So the combination of all of those interests was like, I felt I'm ready. I'm ready mm-hmm. to my next collaboration to, to, to lead this movement and to change way, uh, the way the, the, the system works. And as a result, I started with them as a director of partnerships and together started thinking as we go through our own internal journey of unlearning and learning and acknowledging that we need higher representation in, in the organization of people of first displacement in leadership positions. We need our board to represent that too. Besides making all those like internal commitments, we saw this opportunity as we were asking these questions from the Larson Lam Iconic Impact Award. And it was just like all these applications come to your inbox of like newsletters of like, oh, $12 million award for bold solutions for forced displacement. When this hit our inboxes, my colleague Diana and I, we definitely knew we are not in position to say what is that bold solution. We are not a refugee-led organization yet, but we are in position to facilitate access and to share this opportunity to those who are on the ground, who know the best what is that bold solution. And as, as of that, we went ahead and identified a number of refugee-led organizations across Colombia, Uganda, Asia, Lebanon, and Indonesia. And we convened a coalition together. And as a coalition, we co-created and co-applied for this award. And it was so organic that the, the vision and what this coalition what brought together together is the belief that the solution is local proximity. Mm-hmm. People who are, you know, lived, who have lived experiences around something, they know the best how to address it. And driven by that, we sat together and thought about, well, why not? Again, the barriers. What are the barriers for refugees and refugee-led organizations to be part of global discourses to grow? And those barriers, obviously funding. They are given bits and pieces here and there and starved. Basically, they're starved. Not even local organizations is one category. Refugee-led organization is a subcategory of marginalized local organizations because they're not, they don't have the legal registration. They face a lot of xenophobia, sometimes the language, new country. So we also found out, like this is um, a stat, is that out of the $30 billion that circulates in the humanitarian aid system out of the 30 billion, mm-hmm. at the best count, 0.1% goes to refugee-led organizations. Wow. A best count, 0.1%. That's it's, shocking. It's shameful. Yeah. It is really shameful. It's literally like saying, imagine saying in the women's rights movement, 0.1% goes to women-led organizations. Mm-hmm. This is the sector we've been living and operating with for 70 years. This is the sector that everyone thinks is solving and everyone gives trust and doesn't question their legitimacy. So we found out that as a coalition, this is a problem and we need to change it. And so we proposed in our, in our application at the time is that we will create, we will change that. We will move philanthropic power from local to local to make it local to local. And we propose creating a fund that is led by refugees for refugees. And this fund will collect donor money and 
put it in this fund. And then it's governed by the refugee-led organizations in our coalition. And through an inclusive application process, the money, significant money, not bits and pieces, mm-hmm. and grant-sized money is distributed amongst RLOs all around the world with a component of also um, strengthening those RLOs through a local-to-local strengthening model. Um, mm-hmm. And we won. As a result of that, we won. And I would say we won the Larsenam Iconic Impact Award of $10 million. And then additionally, Hilton Foundation, an anonymous donor joined and we launched with $12.25 um, wow. million. Dollars. And I think this is the first time historically this refugee leadership movement was funding in, funded in a significant fashion. So where are you at the moment in terms of implementing that? So that happened that we won. We, we learned that in May 2021. And ever since we've been launching. And so we are recruiting now. We're in the midst of recruiting refugee team that would also run this, 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 this work. We are designing our application process. We are designing the grants to be released next year. And already our coalition partners of who the RLOs who are part of this award, they are the first recipients of the grant. And they already received their grants and reached thousands already in the past five months only on the ground with holistic services from, from employment to legal rights, to education, to, 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 to food and shelter as well. So everyone does actually all different issues. And that's, again, I think here what was funded and what we will continue to fund is the who. Mm-hmm. We believe in funding and empowering the who and the who. In their context, they know what the best what for them, and we should not limit them. And that's our foundation, foundational element in funding is that do not limit people. People who are on the ground know the best what best for them, and it's about like funding them. Mm-hmm. Where did where, I mean? We've you've obviously created a transformational impact with asylum access, but where does where do things go in terms of your own advocacy for trying to change? the pre-existing organizations? Because if you could create a, a synergistic impact, you create a force multiplier. If you get those old, like as you'd say, colonialist, top-down sort of approaches changed to embrace your model, that's when I think you create a real radical sort of change at scale. How do you go about trying to drive that transformation? Not that you've probably got much time on your hands. No, I have got, and it's important to bring others with you on this journey. It's a huge, it's a, it's an, it's actually one of our strategies in this to use this money is also to do an advocacy. It's ad, continuing to bring people on board with us mm-hmm. and to help people understand the how is very important. We actually have two major elements to do with this money as well. First is like building the evidence. There's really lack of evidence about the effectiveness and importance of funding refugee-led organizations. And so we are going to generate this evidence for the first time in history through mm-hmm. through our own grants and documenting the progress of these RLOs of before and after and understanding exactly to bring to the sector of how much money goes and versus like, you know, when you give, you know, how your money goes further. The second element besides the evidence build is is about helping institutions think about the same questions we're thinking about. Non-refugee-led institutions think about including UNHCR, including government's funding mechanisms, including donors, including INGOs. You want to be part of this sector, you have to rethink about true allyship. It's similar to 
own movements, Black Black Lives Matter movements. You know how every white person now must, I, really, you would be out of date if you don't think about what is true allyship. How could you be an ally for a movement? I think similarly, all non-refugee and allies who are in this sector have to think about what a meaningful true allyship means. And mm-hmm. it's part of our work now is to help people go on this journey. We don't have all the answers, 100%. But I think what's important here is that we started. We started the journey. We started with dedicated money and human interest in that and leadership buy-in. And we are unlearning and learning. And we're telling people and allies is that this is historic issue and you are contributing to it. Do you still want to do that or you want to do things differently? It doesn't eliminate you. It just changed your ways of working. And it's important, you know, in, in this time and age that we, you know, are just to history and just to the communities that we claim we're helping and actually think of our position in this sector and how we do it. So it's a huge part of our advocacy, the donor education, the peer, the peer, the peer exchange and giving people and sharing with people resources to start going on a similar journey. Mm-hmm. And I suppose... You, to use your your phrase, forced migration, we're only likely to see more and more of it as yeah. a result of ongoing conflicts, increasing conflicts that will result as a result as a, a consequence of climate change. So yep. what you're doing and putting in place is the systems and the structures to be prepared for an even greater influx of forced migration. So it's a ne- it's a necessity if we're yeah. going to be able to survive this great transformation over this century to come. Um, Absolutely, especially with the rise of alt right as well, alt right wing. I mean, yeah. we're at danger mm-hmm. of, of more war crimes, at actually or human crimes, crimes against humanity. Not only mm-hmm. by the classic of you know killing people at the border and denying people access. No, we are at the danger of something more, especially that mm-hmm. as you mentioned. People will continue only to flee. Yeah. This is the reality we're, we're moving toward. Yeah. Well, just look at Belarus at the moment and what we're seeing there. Yes. Yeah. And I thank you for bringing this up. It's, I mean, people forget, I think. Like, I don't know, people think the refugee crisis ended in 2016 mm. when, like, you know, it started in Europe somehow and it ended when Europe decided it ended. Yeah. A lot of people <laughs> sway. And yeah, I today I was really grappling internally with the question of like, well, you get killed for fleeing for safety because it's a crime, but yet it's not a crime for you to be killed. I really like, I mean, the hypocrisy of like, well, if you're crossing the border illegally, you get killed because it's a crime, but me killing you is not a crime. I just, it's really as simple as that. All topics that the sector thinks about them complicated. I mean, they're really simple. It's really that. And you want to talk about sovereignty, you want to talk about geopolitics, all of those things, but it comes down to that. And I think our issue is always refusing to humanize and come down to the essence of it. Always mm-hmm. wanting things to be complicated and, and politically driven because it gives a lot of us justification for our action and gives the system justification for the, the, their war crimes. Yeah. No, it's very true. It goes back to what you said earlier. If you've got a strength, it's for stating the obvious. <laughs> and what you just in there is you're putting it in human terms. It depoliticizes it. I'm conscious of time. So I just want to ask you to, if you could give us an update as to 
where your your mother and sisters are now and what your hopes for them of maybe uniting again as a family. So as I seeked asylum in the US and I've been, you know, making my way here, my mom and my two sisters fled to Turkey and were there for five years. During those five years, I tried to bring them to the US, actually, and they were in process of resettlement. And then in 2017, they received an automatic response denying them access to this resettlement because of the travel ban, the Trump um, Muslim travel ban in 2017. And it was a huge disappointment, obviously, for my family and I. I had not seen them, you know, I I did not understand why they can't be here with me. Why do we have to be separated? And um, after that, we, you know, we did not give up. We start seek, seeking other alternative ways for resettlement. We seeked France and also did not get accepted. And then lastly, we seeked Canada. And gratefully, mm-hmm. my mom and my younger were resettled to Canada in 2018 through the private sponsorship program. And my older, um, two years earlier, she left Turkey and uh, to Germany and she is now in Germany. And so now, you know, my, and my father is still missing as we speak today and the rest of the family stays in Syria. So we are pretty scattered. And this is, you know, one example um, of families, displaced families. What are your hopes? I mean, looking forward like 10, 15 years for Syria. Do you have a vision of what, how things could emerge to create a country if that's independent, that's free? I do. I have a vision. I'm not sure if what I have is vision is a vision. I do have hope. Mm-hmm. I think. I think if it wasn't for hope, I would not be still be here, and we'd have not resulted in first place. Uh, revolted in first place, and so and. And in honor of everyone who's still there and in honor of all the detainees, I don't think, I think I, sh- I should have hope. And so I definitely do have hope in terms of like what this hope will manifest to or like the vision. I don't really have a vision for Syria. I just believe it's also another example of the empower, needing to empower those who could be an alternative, needing mm-hmm. to empower them in all possible ways to to, to, to go back to Syria. And that would require also accountability and justice. The Assad, unless the Assad regime is being taken accountable and for their war crimes, unless Russia and all those actors who are involved, Syria will never be safe for any of us to return. And so unless there's, you know, accountability and justice, I don't think there will be safe for us to return. And as a result, to be part of rebuilding Syria, the Syria that looks like us, the Syria mm-hmm. that we dreamt about. So I hope that, you know, through the efforts of so many uh, activists inside and outside Syria, that we'll be able to get Syria and Syrians justice to eventually return and rebuild the country. Yeah, well, I, I hope your hopes are fulfilled. At some point down the line, as you say, every regime at some point has toppled and and, and changes. So, yeah. yeah, let it happen at speed. Quick fire questions. What principles do you stand by? Inclusion. Inclusion and representation. Community. Mm. I am grounded in community everywhere I go. I can't operate without one collectivity and community. I am um, mindfulness and uh, kindness. I'm not sure if that's even like we could think of of, as a principle, but I like to not lose my humanity and my compassion because it's very easy to actually 
be realistic and and lose those principles as you mm-hmm. do this work we do. So I would I would always want to make sure I am mm-hmm. grounded in 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 this. Okay, you've been on a tougher journey than most people that I've certainly interviewed. You must have had to make some very tough and hard choices along the way. But what those choices that have been tough turned out in retrospect to have been the right decision? Because there must have been moments in your journey where you could have gone one direction or another. 100%. I think the major pivot point is deciding to stay in the US and not join my family in Turkey. When my father was taken, it was it was a it was a discussion of whether I want to stay here with nothing mm. or join my family in Turkey, and I decided to stay. And I think it was the right decision for me and for my family. Mm. There's a whole other question there around what what led to that decision, but we'll we'll maybe have to do a follow up on that one. Where do you go to discover new ideas, or when you need space to think? My close support circle, I, I, as I said, I'm grounded in community. So I do care a lot about the people I surround myself with. And I am surrounded by very inspiring individuals from all different backgrounds and, and identities. Um, and um, I make sure that our conversations are fun, but also like actually informing for our growth and personalities. And so I always go back to them. Okay. You're at heart of dealing with an issue that is full of where there's so much injustice in the world around, obviously, representation and having the giving refugees the voices and the control and the agency that they, they deserve and the dignity that they should have. Is that the biggest problem worth solving or are there bigger problems worth solving in the world? Oops. <laughs> What a big question. It is obviously a problem worth solving, but I think if we look at like the roots of it and the roots of many other problems, I would say it's the patriarchy. So dismantling the patriarchy in all its manifestations, um, which I think the, um, the sector is one manifestation, is definitely the problem that's worth solving. If you're the first person that said that, that's a nice answer. That's good. If you had to call from history for people to help you accelerate your impact and what you're doing and to change the world for the better, who would they be? As your, let's say, as your your backup team. Oh, so many people in my current community and outside of that, Angela Davis would be great to think and strategize with about movement building. Actually, Itel Adnan, who is an, a Lebanese poet and writer and an artist who just passed away and a queer activist is someone I would have loved to have had the opportunity to think with about the intersectionality of our different identities and struggles. These two come to mind. Okay. Is there a question no one asks you that you think... You should. So why is no one asking me this question? I think it's not like no one asked me this question, but it's a question. Well, I guess no one asked me and I would like people to ask me is what, who is my dad? To talk Mm -hmm. about him as the person or who he is more than like, not only as an event happened or, you know, as circumstances of forcibly disappeared person, like as him as a person, a human, a character. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, there's a, for the next person that does the research and listens to this podcast, they know the first question to ask you. Yeah. Um, who or what has made you reevaluate yourself? 
The Syrian revolution. I am. Um, I would say everything after that was born out of this moment. So I would say the Syrian revolution made me, shaped me, and made me who I am. Yeah. And I'm very grateful for that. Um, we always ask um, the possible question: What would your advice be to someone that's got a grand ambition, dream, a goal, but has been told, "Forget it. You'll never change that." Oh, ownership on it. Once you, once, once someone's on like their story, their agenda, whatever they want, once you have this sense of ownership over it, nothing deters you. Um, so I would say own it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and then these questions, um, we usually ask about a karaoke song, um, that some people say, I'm not answering that. So it's up to you whether you want to answer it or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could answer it. Um, in English, I think it would be Dancing Queen. For Abba. Abba. Oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah. It's, a, it's a classic. <laughs> I have one in Arabic. Um, which, which is? It's called, it's called Ana Mush Alaniyam by Maryam Faris. It's a Lebanese pop if you, singer. If, if you send me a link, um, I'll okay. put the link to it in the show notes. Um, if there's a, a film, a series, a documentary that's important for people to see that they might not have, what do you think it should be? So many. Pose, I think it's called, um, the one I liked, um, Pose, it's about, um, um, drags, um, drag in, um, in Harlem, in, in New York. Um, Pose. Yeah. Oh, yes. right. I've not, not heard about that. Right. Okay. We'll add the that to the list. Okay. I'll watch it as well. Um, uh, a book that we should offer our listeners that submit a good comment or, um, on Instagram or on the website, what would that book be? <laughs> About any topic? can be anything you want you think someone should read. What? That's hard. Um, I know it's hard, but you've got to, you know, got to make it hard. Um, I would say a book that really has been um, important for me in the past year is um, this book called White Tears, Brown Scars by Ruby Hammond. Um, it's, um, I think it's very important, especially for people in our sector. And Ruby Hammond. Yes. Okay. All She's right. Lebanese, a Syrian writer based in Australia. All right. I'll put that down. And the final question, who should we interview next? I've been thinking about this. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to answer now. If you want some time okay. to think about it, you can come back no, to us. No, honestly, because just because there's so many amazing people and I'm just yeah. thinking about who needs a platform. Um, yeah. So I will definitely think and let you know. All right. Well, um, Hassan, I thank you for your time. I mean, it's an incredible, it's an incredible sort of journey um, story that's only uh, only just begun, really, and the great transformation that you're underway. And I think just have to acknowledge you for the uh, what comes across as just deep courage um, for, as you said yourself, stating the obvious. But it takes a lot of courage to state the obvious and to build movements. You're clearly adept at building movements and coalitions for change and we really need it in the world at the moment so hopefully what you're building with for refugees and and uh, representation and voices and agency and dignity you will start to do that beyond just refugees because you know, what your the tools and the techniques and the energy you've got are surely going to inspire others so good luck to you yeah thank you so much for having me mark and for creating the platform and space for this conversation and other conversations. Oh, 
pleasure. It's, uh, it's, it's more my pleasure because I get to hear these great stories and be inspired. So it's, it's fantastic. So, um, yeah, thank you very much. Cool. Great. Have right, a good Sana. one. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. That's all for this week, folks. If you're enjoying the show, please either follow, download or subscribe on your preferred podcast player. We'd also appreciate a rating and a review as it helps more people find us. And if you have a guest you think we should interview, just email us at info at theimpossiblenetwork.com or message us on Instagram at The Impossible Network. This is a Fabrica Collective production. So have a great week and we'll be back next time with another inspiring guest on The Impossible Network.